Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. On this episode of the podcast, I speak with Caitlin Schlesinger. She is the CEO and chief consultant of KS Strategies, a Nevada-based consulting firm that specializes in helping businesses improve their social and environmental impact. We have a really dynamic conversation around B Corps. I learned a ton about the current status of B Corps, the process, everything was involved, and I was really inspired, specifically around the fact that so many venture investors are now supporting B Corps. I was really surprised about that. Caitlin is just a really dynamic individual. She's very authentic. We had a really beautiful conversation. So on with the podcast. Welcome, Caitlin, to the Growth Pioneers podcast. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Doug. I'm excited to be here. I really appreciated our conversation last week. It was really insightful, and I was just really happy that we could make this work. Yes, same. We were just discussing before we started recording how many listeners we had, and I'm excited about that, but I'm also just excited to be able to connect with you again. Yeah, me too. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm excited to learn more about you, um, about B Corps, and just a lot about what's going on down in Vegas and your experience. So why don't you give the listeners a little bit of a background of who you are and kind of what brought you here? Yes, I would love to do that. I am born and raised in Reno. I am a Nevada person, born and bred. I went to school in the Washer County School District. That'll come into play later. Went to college down here in Las Vegas and loved it. It's such an amazing community. And I lived here for about five years. I re-relocated back again during the mass exodus of the Bay Area during the 2020 start of the pandemic. So I was living in the Bay for a few years before re-relocating back here, working in tech startups and getting to dive into startup land quite a bit more was ready for a change and to come back to my Nevada roots. And so that's what found me here. That's great. Yeah. I don't know if you technically count as a Bay Area refugee because you're from Nevada. So you just, you just left for a while and then just found your way back home. So that counts too. That's great. Absolutely. I know there's that Nevada joke, don't California my Nevada. I like to think I was Nevadaing their California. I like that. No, that's, <laughs> I really like that. That's good. Yeah. I, honestly, one of the things that gives me the greatest pride is 10 years ago when we started doing this work, a lot of people left Nevada because there weren't opportunities for them to stay here. And so to have Nevadans come back home and have real opportunity is really one of the key objectives we set out to accomplish 10 years ago. And so you're kind of like one data point to help prove that that's working. So thank you. I'm part of both ends of that, actually. So my background is primarily public education nonprofit. Coming back around to Washington County School District, I actually cut my teeth there in the communications department. I was the community liaison for their elected board of trustees. My job was to manage their reputation and all forms. And I actually loved my time at the school district. It was a wonderful, formative time, and the people that work there are just so smart and passionate. From there, I worked in a Nevada-based national nonprofit. But from there, there wasn't a lot of additional opportunity for me, which led me to leaving for the Bay in the first place, because I wanted to expand my impact and work with more organizations that had strong social and environmental goals. And while there are many organizations in Nevada that are doing that, there weren't so many that were actively hiring at that time. And so I I found my work in the Bay. Yeah. Well, you you must like controversy. I mean, that was kind of a controversial time to be at Washoe (laughs) County School District. Or at least you're not afraid of controversy, which is good, right? I mean, that's what we need to help enforce change. No, but that's funny. Our our paths never crossed, even though we were in the same orbits back then. So I'm glad they crossed now. Yeah, that's good. So what did you do in the Bay? Were you you mostly worked in startups and in, in kind of what capacity? That's right. So I worked with a number of education technology startups. However, I've also always had a booming freelance business that eventually developed into my own company. And so outside of working full-time in education technology, doing everything from strategic partnerships to community engagement and lots and lots of marketing work. So digital marketing primarily, but I've also run some PR campaigns and some larger strategic initiatives. Beyond that, I also worked with companies across the board. So cannabis tech, 
I had a client there. Yeah, there's a lot of technology in that industry <laughs> these days. Oh, yeah, there is. It surprised me, actually, because I was not familiar with it at all before. I ended up working with this organization, a number of SaaS companies as well that I worked with, so software as a service, as I, I'm sure your listeners know. And most recently, I was working with a tech company named Gaggle, not a startup. They've been around for over 20 years now. They have a flagship software service that identifies kids who might be struggling with risky behaviors. So it identifies if they're engaging in things like bullying or substance misuse. And it does find a high number of students who are suffering from things like anxiety, depression, and, and having thoughts of suicide. During my time there, I actually spearheaded a new, new division where we built and launched a national teletherapy service that serves students in 22 states and thousands of kids and their families across the country. And so it was entirely teletherapy based. When I designed the program, it was around eliminating as many common barriers as possible to receiving services. And so students engaged with it from their school site. So they were identified by the school to be good candidates for the service, but it was actually covered entirely by the school. So it was free for families and wow. students to use. Yeah, such an important, I mean, anybody that's listening to the show knows I have a real passion for trying to normalize you know, mental health challenges and trying to get out and help break down barriers and stigma associated with mental health. And it sounds like Gaggle was a great way to do that. I, I know this is such an issue, especially in COVID. You know, I've just just watched my own kids. You know, I think that there's probably more anxiety and depression now. It just seems like than ever. I mean, I'm reading a lot about that, but just watching my own kids. I mean, it's complicated when you go through a pandemic and then war, and then you just see all these complicated adult issues on top of what might otherwise be underlying issues inside of families and all that. So, I mean, it's a huge need and it, I, it seems like we're starting to address it, but it's been largely unaddressed, it feels like, for a long time, or at least at scale. And it uh, sounds like great work. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's fascinating work too, because you're coming up against all of these large-scale systemic barriers, right? If you're somebody who is social impact-minded, you know that the systems that we have in place, they're not really working for a lot of people and things like the provider pipeline, right? Like how are mental health providers getting educated? Are there enough to fulfill the needs of communities? Do people in places like rural communities have the same level of care and the same access to care as people in urban environments? There are so many different facets to the mental health crisis where the systems and the social aspects at play really do make a big difference in who receives care, how they receive care, and the quality of care that is provided to them. Yeah, I can only imagine you must have you know, seen a lot. What was sort of your inspiration for choosing that path? I mean, you, you know, you've had a lot of different other experiences, but do you have, is there some kind of core why behind why you got involved with mental health? Absolutely. Several. So... Personally, I have a long-standing family history of mental health disorders, have been impacted by mental health disorders from a young age. Additionally, I suffer from my own mental health disorders. I think stigma reduction is really important. And so being able to name the things that you're currently experiencing to normalize them is, is crucial in personal and also professional environments. And so I suffer from depression. Beyond that, I also, having worked with schools and districts, both in a community and national capacity, these are the things that are coming to the surface again and again. There was a statistic that NAMI produced that said that 10 million kids, young adults actually, so 13 to 18, suffer from a mental health disorder. And only 30% of those actually get mental health support. And those are numbers from before the pandemic. Right. We yeah. know that the pandemic and these last couple of years, they've exacerbated a lot of the factors that contribute to mental health disorders. And also they've exacerbated some of the symptoms for kids as well. And so I personally knew there was a need, but also professionally recognized that the need was there to do something about this major challenge that our society faces. Yeah. Well, first of all, I really appreciate your candor and being able to share your personal experience. I and mean, I think those are the things that drive us, like, you know, having connected to our own experiences and passions. So I really appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, just for the effort to support the children. I mean, I, I didn't realize this, but 
during the pandemic, some of the tools or some of the first warning signs have been blunted, right? Like, I, I don't think that CPS can get involved now because of truancy issues because of the pandemic. And so that was sort of some of the first line where if you started to see kids not show up in school, that would trigger a process. Well, that no longer exists in Nevada. Now, hopefully that'll change eventually, but it's such a complicated problem. I'm just really glad that you were able to put some energy on that. And But you also, you know, you ran your course with that. What are you up to today? What What kind of inspired you to take your next leap? I'm so glad you asked me that. So building that service, working with Gaggle, having the amazing experiences I've had throughout my career with impact organizations has led me to want to do more in that space. And so now I am the CEO and principal consultant at Chaos Strategies. Chaos Strategies was created to solve a problem that all conscious businesses face. And that's how do you make and measure consistent social and environmental impact? We spent almost the last decade helping businesses improve their systems, tell their stories, expand their offerings, and harness their capacity to make a positive impact. Businesses are uniquely positioned to create new systemic structures, but they can't do it alone. So we offer strategic planning, service, and program design, including community engagement. And the one thing, one service that we're offering that I'm actually really excited to talk about today is B Corp certification. I am obsessed with the B Corp movement. <laughs> I am excited to learn more about it. I mean, I know that there aren't that many in Nevada, so it seems like a huge opportunity. I mean, I, I love to, to dive into that. You know, I, I really wanted to take a moment and just appreciate, like, you know, what you said about the power of business to shape our community and how we need to look at new structures. And I think a lot of what's happened over the last 10 years has put pressure on a lot of our systems and forcing us to rethink some of those. And I, at the core of it is the corporation. And I think B Corp is a really interesting way of approaching that. You know, there's probably not the only way, but I don't know a ton about it. I mean, I know a little bit about it on the surface. Maybe I'll give you my basic understanding and you can correct me. But, you know, isn't fundamentally a B Corp does not require the founders to make the investors the primary fiduciary. Like they don't have a primary fiduciary to the investors. They have a more broad fiduciary to a broader group of stakeholders. Is that is that right? Or am I am I in the ballpark at least? That's exactly right. Yeah. So I always like to think about it as business leaders, entrepreneurs prioritizing the triple bottom line. And the triple bottom line is just the belief that companies should focus on social and environmental concerns as much as they do profits. Yeah. Companies can redefine success by factoring in the three P's of people, the planet, and profits. Yeah, that seems simple. Probably not as simple as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> you know, obviously it sounds natural, right? Like, I mean, we want, you know, we have people, profit, planet. That's great. Why do you think it's been so hard to do that? To this point? Like, what do you think are some of the barriers to that? And how's B Corp solved those, some of those? That's a great question. So I think, as you said, we're at a turning point, right? The past thinking was that the primary function of business was to make profits. But I don't believe that that's the case anymore. We're rethinking the role of business in our society and looking for companies that are making an authentic impact and aren't just performative advocates, right? Or greenwashing. Movements yeah. like social entrepreneurship, stakeholder capitalism, and the one around B Corps are crucial to helping businesses measure and deliver on these values. And the B Corp movement specifically means that you have gone through this rigorous process that upholds high standards of accountability and transparency. And now you're not just talking the talk, you're actually walking the walk. Yeah, which is great. I mean, I do think that's a key differentiator is that you're being certified by an outside agency, almost auditing. You know, I mean, I love seeing the expansion of ESG committees and yes. people developing all that. But, you know, some of it can be greenwashing, right? I mean, yes. some of it can be virtue signaling. Some of it can be their values and their intention may be misaligned a little bit. But it sounds like with B Corp, you really, they don't give you a lot of latitude. You have to go through a rigorous process to get certified, is it? That's correct, yeah. It does seem like there is this interesting point, though, right? I mean, uh, the people and planet have always been important. So why now? And it does seem to me, and I'm curious that what your thoughts on this are, it does seem like there's a shift across the stack. Like for a while, you, know, you had activist consumers, and that's one thing. But now you have the consumers 
now you've got the corporations recognizing, hey, you know, we need to address those consumers more than ever. And then now you're seeing the investors saying, hey, this is important. So now, you know, you had one influence before, but now you have consumers, investors, and corporations all saying, hey, wait, wait, this is important now. So, And then, of course, with governments and regulatory. So it feels like we've kind of got all the pieces in play that didn't exist even, you know, four or five years ago. Is that kind of what you're experiencing? I mean, do you think that there's this kind of fundamental shift that's happening? I think so. Yeah. I mean, so the B Corp movement is pretty new. It was started in 2006, but it's really only caught on in the last five, 10 years. So it's a global movement. And I think that now that more companies are signing on, there's a lot of proven successes that are making it more interesting and engaging for all of the people you just mentioned, right? For consumers, consumers are starting to buy in on the B Corp movement. For investors, we'll we'll come back around to that because I have some really great information about investors and their perspective on B Corps. But also that being good for people, being good for the environment, it's a compelling story, right? I think a lot of people become entrepreneurs because they have a vision and they're not just passive about that vision. These are people that are fanatical about what they do, so much so that they build their entire lives and livelihood and careers around it. And I think more people are having visions around being good for people and being good for the environment because that's all we've got, right? There is no no planet B. People are as we were talking about earlier with the teletherapy and mental health crisis, right? People are running up against systems that are no longer serving them. And the best place to actually start addressing inequities and some of the larger systemic issues that we have are within businesses and corporations. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I I think that we're learning a lot from the younger generations, right? I think the millennials in particular, despite all of the, the negative things associated with them are, I mean, they're the tip of the spear. They're changing the landscape and their their feelings and attitudes are driving business. And as they continue to grow and build their own businesses and work their way up into corporate ladders, we're going to see more and more transformation around that. And I, I think it's great. I mean, I just didn't think of my own experience as an entrepreneur, you know, half, it's so hard a lot of times to go from zero to one. And you're just, for a lot of times we would talk to investors or entrepreneurs about, okay, look, I have this crazy investment scheme where I've got this other thing of like, hey, look, if it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Don't get too crazy because a lot of times investors will shy away from things that are different. Like I had an investor one time say, I love everything about your company, but I don't like the fact you're an LLC because I just don't want to get a K-1. And so simply that thing, I mean, K-1s are a pain, you know, but... That little deviation, like we're not a Delaware C Corp, was enough to turn away an investor. And so, you know, I can imagine as B Corp is getting out there and it's not in the very early days, you know, you've got these people that are true believers, but at the end of the day, you know, you got to raise capital, you got to make these things happen. I've, in my own experience, I've had to turn away from some of my, those things that were important to try and get the deal done. It seems like that's shifting. So tell me a little bit about how is B Corp becoming more normalized and how does that you know, what are the advantages, the disadvantages? Give me the whole B Corp pitch, I guess. Okay, <laughs> yeah, dive into I, it. I'd Go love to. <laughs> uh, so I want to come back around to something that you said about millennials, right? So as I'm sure everyone listening knows, we're in the middle of the great resignation. It is getting harder and harder for companies to attract and retain top talent. Certified B Corps are attractive to job seekers because they're organizations that have clear mission and values. Millennials make up more than half of the workforce. Young people want to vote with their jobs and with their dollars. So young professionals are more likely to work with you and to stay long-term if your business values align with their personal values. Hmm. Being a B Corp can also help you attract top MBA students. Universities like Columbia, Harvard, NYU, and Yale Business Schools are now offering student loan forgiveness for MBA graduates who go on to work for a certified B Corp. Oh, wait, say that again. I can get my loans forgiven if I join a B Corp? That's right. Wow. That's the first time I heard that. That's interesting. Isn't it? And it was by student demand, right? Students of these MBA programs were going back to the uni- their universities saying, 
this is something that we feel passionate about and advocated enough to make this program a reality. Wow. Yeah. That's a really interesting way of affecting social change. I mean, I love that idea. I mean, we've been thinking about different ways of creating different incentives. You know, I, I don't want to wade into the economic incentive challenges, but looking at these alternative ways of doing that. I mean, what a creative idea. I love that idea. So all of the Nevada B Corps, of which there are six, go start targeting Yale MBAs. And what was the other other one? Columbia, Harvard, okay. NYU. There are a couple of others as well, but I know that wow. those are the big okay. names. I will call my friends that run B Corps in town and let them know. I mean, I know two of the six, so that's pretty good, I guess. Please do. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. I mean, there's other benefits too. So having a strong business ethos is also really good for your brand. A recent study by Goldman Sachs showed that consumers identified being socially responsible as the most likely factor to influence brand loyalty. Interesting. Yeah. Is that qualified in any way? I mean, around different types of businesses or just broadly? You know, I don't have additional information from that study. I, I pulled that data point, but I can tell you that Dannon, right, the large multinational food company, they are going through B Corp status uh, certification right now. They may have actually just achieved it. And their CEO, Emmanuel Faber, I'm butchering that. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I'm sorry, Dannon. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be okay. He'll be okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't speak French. He actually said that he wanted to pursue B Corp certification because he believes that consumers of the future will be paying more attention to the ethos of a company and that it gives them a competitive advantage over other brands. He believes that consumers will pay more or buy more of their products because they're a brand on a mission and a certified B Corp. Yeah, I'm really hopeful that that's true. And I, and I think that it's shifting. I mean, I when we had the paddleboard business about 10 years ago, we were trying to build a carbon neutral paddleboard. And it was impossible <laughs> to do such a thing at the time. I mean, there was just no way to really track all the carbon emissions. Now, I mean, there's new companies that come out and all that. But what it Ultimately, even through all of the things we went through, it looked like it was probably going to add about $25 in cost to try and, per board, which would translate into almost $100 in retail. And what we found at the time was people weren't that concerned about it. Now, this was a decade ago, and I think it really depends on the product. It was frustrating to me at the time because here we are selling a you know an outdoor product. So we thought that people would care. But I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the price sensitivity is still an issue for some products, but I'm hopeful that that's changing. I mean, I think, I mean, this is just my own pontification here, but, you know, I think we've been drunk on cheap products for a long time in this country. And with inflation, with global supply chains, you know, maybe this will change the way we consume and maybe we will consume higher quality and less quantity. I don't know. Maybe that's just aspirational, but I would rather vote with my dollars on things that I care about, like the millennials. I'm just hoping that that turns out to be a, true. But I guess even if 5 to 10% of consumers did that, that would be hugely significant to the world. Yes, yes. Oh, and I actually don't think that's that aspirational. So I am embarrassed to admit that I am an elder TikTok user. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been seeing a lot of content lately. Mind you, it's curated for me. That's my disclaimer. But I've been seeing a lot of content lately about conscious consumerism about people who are Gen Z, people who are millennials, I'm a millennial, who are starting to think and rethink about how they consume and whether or not it's shameful to experience and to participate in things like overconsumption and damaging consumer practices. While 10 years ago, I can absolutely see how an additional $100 would have been way beyond the scope of what a standard consumer would be comfortable spending for something that was carbon neutral. But I think today, millennials have a much larger spending power. I mean, not, not much yeah. larger, because that's a conversation for another day, but we have been economically yeah. stunted. We've now taken on larger roles, we're getting better salaries, we're farther advanced in our careers. And I think today, maybe an extra $100 for something that is carbon neutral would be compelling. Well, and I think today, actually, we'd be able to do it much cheaper, right? Companies like InZero, Adam Kramer, I had him on the podcast, where you actually have tools to track it. Like, that was one of the biggest challenges, especially if you're buying globally. 
I don't, I don't want to get into Chinese manufacturing, but when we did a lot, we, we would go over there and we're like, we really want to do things that are great for the planet. And they're like, yeah, 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 we're totally, we're aligned. And then you would see all the paint spray going into the rivers and stuff. And it, and it was, it broke my heart because it was, we had no other choice, really, if we wanted to build a competitive board. I think all of that is changing. And that's, that's where, I guess, from my perspective, having investors, companies, consumers, and government all now around that and seeing that shift feels like the necessary steps for this to be successful. I mean, B Corp has obviously been leading the way. No, is it, it's probably a lot simpler to get a B Corp certification when you're smaller than when you're a Dannon, I would imagine, right? I mean, just because you just don't have as much to go through. I mean, what is, what is it really like to go through that? Like if you're a, a small company, five to 20 employees, what is something like that? I mean, is it harder in services and business versus manufacturing? Like, kind of help me walk through what is the certification process like? Yes. So the certification process actually varies based on your size. B Labs, who is the certifying body with the B Corp certification, they actually have a tiered type assessment where based on the corporate makeup and types of business that you do, they actually change the assessment a little bit for you. So here's what the process looks like. First, you complete the free confidential B-Impact Assessment. That's live online with B-Labs. The B-Impact Assessment is a tool that turns the idea of using business as a force for good into measurable, actionable steps. It looks at five areas. So it's your worker, community, environmental, governance, and customer impact. For certification, you have to reach a minimum required score of 80 of 200 points and fulfill the legal requirements in your jurisdiction. Most businesses get an average score of 50 when they first take the assessment. And so you have to be performing pretty well to actually receive your certification. Then once you meet that criteria, you sign the B Corp Declaration of Interdependence, paying an annual certification fee, that, and that fee is based on how big your business is and share your score publicly in the B Corp directory. So every company that's been B Corp certified has a score that's live online on the B Corp directory. And it's actually broken out by each of those areas that I mentioned earlier. So you can go and see how Ben and Jerry's, for example, their certified B Corp, how they do on impact for their workers or what their environmental impact is. And Ben and Jerry's is a great use case for this because they actually have all of their suppliers, everyone within their supply chain, also take the B impact assessment to measure how they actually are on their environmental goals to make sure that their suppliers aren't doing things like greenwashing. Yeah. Wow. How often do you reassess? I mean, obviously your businesses change and things happen. I mean, do you have to recertify every year? Is it every three? How does that work? That's right. Yeah. So you recertify every three years. And to be fair, it is a rigorous process. It can be challenging for business leaders to navigate, and it's an extra responsibility that you have that is on top of what you're already doing day to day. And so it's not an easy process per se, and being a larger corporation, sometimes you'll have an advantage because you can build a committee internally, right? You can have somebody and you have the resources to have one person spearhead it from within your organization. Small and mid-sized companies maybe don't have that same level of capacity or resources, and those are generally the companies that I would work with who need that extra support and and external guidance. Yeah. So just along those lines, I mean, do you also help companies write ESG reports and things like that? Or or is it mostly around the B Corp? We can, yes. I would say the majority of the work that I do is around strategic planning to improve your goals. And so looking at your current social and environmental impact and how we can make incremental steps to improve. Also do things like service design. So building services much like I did for gaggle therapy to serve your community and stakeholders and also to improve your day-to-day impact. Oh, that's great. So I go through and I do my first B-Lab certification and I get a 50. I need to get to 80. You know, what are the common things that people are seeing that score at 50? I mean, what are, are there some common areas that all companies sort of run into? Or like, what? give me a couple of examples of why would I get a 50 and what would it take to get me to an 80? Yeah, it actually varies quite a bit company to company. And depending on what type of values that your company was founded on and what your current practices look like, that can really dictate what your score is. Because if you're really great for workers, for example, right, you offer paid parental leave, you do 
full benefits and help employees with financial planning. You have initiatives around diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? You can score really well in the worker category, but maybe your governance documents don't mention anything about social or environmental impact. And so you might score lower in that category. For the environmental category, you could be using energy efficient appliances and also providing other ways for your employees to get to work and incentivizing them to do so. But you may not be very involved in the community that you're in. And so it really is kind of a push pull on all five of those areas to try to get that score. Yeah, sometimes. So I'm going to offer a free mini assessment to your listeners. It's just like a quick quiz that everybody can take to see how they're doing, right? Like what their social and environmental impact currently is, if they're in good standing to pursue B Corp certification. And on it, you can get some ideas to see like areas that you can improve. So that's an option. However, there is a ton of resources online with B Labs and tons of other places that you can look to see what they're recommending as best practices for improving your social and environmental impact in each of those areas under worker, community, environmental, governance, and customer. I'm so curious to do my own assessment. I will make sure and include the link in the show notes as well. I I mean, I really appreciated you kind of articulating some of the things that, that show up in the different categories of the workers and governance. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. How do you see the B Corp assessment as it relates to ESG. So we're kind of we're going through an ESG process inside of our organization right now. And so I'm just kind of curious how do you, how do you look at the difference between an ESG evaluation and a B Corp evaluation? I think you could use the B impact assessment to inform your ESG initiatives because at the core it's just a framework to being better in each of those impact areas. Yeah. With those impact areas, I mean, where do you think when we say better, how are we defining better? Like under what measures? I mean, obviously like reduction in carbon footprint is better for the planet. And so I guess, you know, providing childcare for your employees is better for the families. But I'm curious, like where does sort of better get defined? I'm always curious about that. Oh, that's a great question. So I think first it, it matters where you are because better is a measurement from your baseline. But I think some standards are incorporating these values back into every facet of your business, right? And so thinking about how your company operates and if it's an inclusive environment, thinking about your supply chain and if it's actually green and environmentally conscious, thinking about your water usage, buying things like carbon credits or or trying to find a way to reduce your carbon footprint looking at your community impact and if you're actually serving those within your community, making sure that customers have a voice in your product development and giving them an opportunity to provide that clear feedback and having kind of an empathy-based feedback cycle so that everything that you create upholds those values of social and environmental impact, but is also meaningful to your customer and provides good value to them. Yeah, I appreciate that. So with we're talking a lot about the benefits, right? I mean, we actually been talking a lot about like what it takes together, which sounds like a lot of work. So let's just remind our listeners, why is this important again? I mean, other than doing the right thing for the planet, but like what are the companies are reiterate why companies benefit from becoming B Corps? And then we're going to talk about the pitfalls. I'm all about it. So, I mean, besides reinforcing your social and environmental values to do more good in the world, I think that that's a strong value prop. Yeah. And also attracting and retaining top talent, specifically millennials, right, in a younger workforce, having a strong brand and actually engaging with consumers who will have stronger brand loyalty because you align with their values. There's one more, too. So, the B Corp movement is a really active community. Yeah, I know many entrepreneurs feel isolated, which has only been exacerbated over the last few years. The B Corp movement is about being a part of something bigger than yourself. And joining the movement means that you get to be with like-minded folks who share your passion and mission for positive change. These are pioneers, right? They're movers and shakers who don't just envision a brighter future. They're taking active steps to make it happen. You're getting me all fired up. I'm really excited about it. I mean, yeah. obviously, you know, 
I like working with pioneers, obviously, and ones that are focused on growth. Of course. Me too. But I'm really encouraged by that. I mean, I do think there's a real power in working with like-minded entrepreneurs. I mean, I, I'm a huge su- fan of any kind of entrepreneurial support or mentor organization. You know, my listeners know I was part of uh, entrepreneurs organization for like 11 years, 12 years, can't even remember now. I'm still with the forum for 15 years. And it's been the one of the single most impactful things in my life is to go through this journey with eight other founders and through ups and downs, through business success and failure and product. And so, you know, to find those folks that also are quite honestly dealing with the challenges of being a pioneer, right? I mean, the pioneers didn't just roll across the plains and grab everything and it wasn't a problem. I mean, they ran into lots of problems. Yes, it's not easy. (laughs) No, it's not easy to do the right thing sometimes, although it's getting easier and easier, but it is not always easy. So it's good to have people that can work with you on that. And so with that, like, what are what are some of the pitfalls do you see it's, if you're going to pursue the B Corp path? It's a rigorous, time-consuming process that takes a lot of work and internal buy-in. And it can be kind of hard to pull off without the right guide. We've talked a lot about structuring your impact and also how you get better, but it's hard to know where to start. I've also heard some early stage startups, similar to your experience, who don't want to go through the certification process because they are concerned that it might make fundraising more difficult. And while the nature of the movement is really important, certification might not be for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the fundraising. I mean, I have a friend who I will, in confidence, not disclose who they are, but was a B Corp and then went through some institutional financing. And some of the governance that was required by B Corp made it untenable for that investor to invest in them. And then when faced with multiple million dollar investment or maintaining some of the governance requirements of B Corp, well, they chose the money. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't blame them for that. I mean, you know, you, having a growing concern is important if you're going to, you know, make change. So I don't know if that's an isolated issue or not. But what, you know, what have you, any thoughts or suggestions on, on the fundraising issue? Yes. My old boss slash mentor always used to say, you can't make change if you're not making money. <laughs> and so I yeah, totally I like that. understand that. Yeah, right. But... I think that's changing a bit. And so the B Corp movement is valuable, even if you don't become a certified B Corp, because now you have this framework to work on these goals. And even if you never reach certification, doing better in social and environmental impact is always a worthy cause. However, as of 2020, 120 venture capital firms have invested more than $2 billion in certified B Corps and benefit corporations. So Union Square Ventures, the firm that invested in Mm -hmm. Kickstarter, says that B Corps are appealing because the companies that produce the most stakeholder value will also produce the best financial returns. Mm. I think that that's absolutely incredible and consistent with some of the other topics that we've talked about, right? With brand loyalty and millennials want to vote with their dollars. Some other investors in certified B Corps include Goldman Sachs, Greylock Partners, Red Sea Ventures, Investico, Sequoia Capital, The Foundry Group, Silicon Valley Bank, and there are many others. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, and it's also beneficial for acquisitions. So from 2016 to 2017, which I know feels like, you know, 100 years ago, consumer goods giant Unilever acquired five certified B Corps. That was just over the course of that year. Wow, I'm still digesting all the amount of money that was invested from venture into the world. I mean, I you know, I had no idea it had come that far because I mean, that's a real statement of traction in the movement when you have those leading venture firms making those investments, working through. I mean, clearly what that means is they're comfortable with the governance documents, they're comfortable with the structure of the organization, they're willing to deal with some of the ri- potential risks. I mean, again, I don't know all the legal the legal framework here, but a lot of times anything you want to, you, investors want to minimize all their legal risks and strange structures and things like that can be a problem. So the fact that organizations like that are making investments really speaks volumes to my mind about the value of B Corp and that it's really not as much of a hurdle. I mean, I'm sure, you know, they're on the cutting edge getting your local angel group to understand that just like I had difficulty trying to convince them to take a K-1, may be a hurdle. But in some ways, I mean, and again, it's, you want to pick your investors that align with your ethos. And if that's really the sticking point, then maybe that's a question that it's not the right investor. And again, it's 
when faced with no investment or some investment, maybe you may have to make that choice. But, you know, there's a lot of money out there right now. And I think it's it's much better to find investors that align with your values for the long run. I mean, that's I would much rather be with someone that says, look, we're going to, you know, not require you to hold us as the primary fiduciary. But we know in doing so, you're going to be more successful over the long run. I mean, that's the other thing you said that I'm still kind of internalizing is that doing the right thing actually is more financially viable. That's a much better like let's do the right thing and make more money. Yeah. Like, who wouldn't do that? Why does it have to be either or? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the issue, though, is it takes more energy on the front end. But that's true for all change, right? I mean, I, you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking about our own programs and how we're trying to be more inclusive. And the reality of it is that it takes more work, right? I mean, we have to go to find people that aren't at the table. You can't go looking in the same places that you have always looked. And so by definition, it takes more effort. But at the end of the day, you get a better group, you get a broader perspectives, everybody gets a seat at the table. And you're, you know, that's one of those things internally, that we've sort of wrestled with is like, okay, we realize now it's just going to take more intention and more work on the front end. But it will pay off in the long run. And so just kind of getting solidified around that idea has been really really helpful then we just all right we'll just plan for it now yes yeah and to set the perspective most things of value are more work i hate working out (laughs) i'll admit it right now i hate it with the burning passion of a thousand suns but it's good for me and it is work on the front end but i know that the value outweighs the pain and i think this is a lot like that where If you know that this is aligned with your values and this is aligned with who you want to be and how you want your company to show up in the world, then it's worth the work. Yeah. I give this book to every entrepreneur I meet. It's my good friend Darius's book, uh, Core Value Equation. And I, you know, I really believe that core values are the foundation of your house. I mean, if you build your house on a shaky foundation, it's not going to be resilient. And so to me, getting your core values aligned, turning that into, or make having good core values and then aligning that through your corporate process and extending it out of the world through B Corp just not only builds a strong foundation, but then it builds a strong walls and a whole house. I totally see how these things are aligned. Yes. Oh, I love yeah. all of that. I also don't like to work out, by the way. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a huge fan of exercise. I mean, I, I, I would like to. It just doesn't seem to make it into my priority list as mm-hmm. much. <laughs> But anyway, I appreciate your your candor. We're both part of the, we know we need to exercise, but it's not the greatest thing for us, camp. No, yeah. I am constantly in awe of the people that just jump out of bed at 5 a.m. and go for a 10-mile run. That will never be me, but I applaud them. So if that's you, right, who's listening, like, kudos to you. I will never be one of you. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I pop out of bed at five and then go find a comfortable place to sit and then meditate. That seems easier for me. I don't know, whatever it is. I, you know, yes. jump out of bed and then sit. And I don't know, that's a good way to get the day started. But You're working so, out your brain. Uh, totally. No, that, that's, I had that problem. I got that one sorted. It's the, <laughs> it's the weightlifting <laughs> that's the problem. But yeah. uh, we'll see. One thing at a time. So is there anything on B Corps that we haven't covered? I mean, I like, I'm sold on this. I really appreciate it. I, ha- I only had the cursory understand this, but I think I have a much deeper understanding. But is there anything we, we didn't cover on B Corps? Oh, that is a good question. Other than that, we need a lot more Nevada companies. I mean, there's only six, right? I mean, there's only six in Nevada. Yes, which it actually blows my mind because I always think of Nevada as having a pioneering spirit. We are the Wild West in a lot of ways, but because of that, we have this amazing tenacity and individuality where we're able to go out and do the hard things. And so it does shock me that we don't have more B Corps here because I feel like the B Corp movement is very aligned with the Nevada spirit. To answer your question, it's never too late to start on this journey. Even if you've been in business for 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, or maybe you've been at it for two, it's still important and valid to be engaged in something like this. So the first thing I recommend is to take stock of your current social and environmental impact. Take my mini assessment if you're interested. 
and start rethinking how you are performing for all your stakeholders and not just your shareholders. Yeah, I love that. And if you want to talk to some folks that have gone through this, you know, Abby from the Abby Agency, a great friend of mine, she's, they have a, just went through the B Corp certification. And I remember her expressing that it was complicated. You know, she's a pioneer in the community. And then Colin Lorette's from the uh, Reno Collective. And they were, I think they were probably one of the first, if not the first, I'm not sure, in Nevada. So you have a couple of, you know, for you Renoites, talk to Abby or Colin about that process. And We'll put Caitlin's information on the podcast in the show notes and reach out to her as well. But before I let you go, you, you mentioned this thing you were working on, this 300-something. What, what was that about? Yes. So I'm going to be a little bit vulnerable. I am working on this project. One of my my goals this year was to get 300 rejections, which sounds oh. terrifying. I've, I've told friends about this. and Love it. Some of my friends say that makes my skin crawl. I sometimes suffer from imposter syndrome, and I know that that's silly because intellectually, I know that I'm a qualified professional with a great, successful track record. But on the day-to-day, I am still very nervous to engage in everyday business activities sometimes, right? Like, I feel like I'm not always showing up in a way that is meaningful for me. And so to try to combat that... I have been trying to put myself out there in scenarios with the goal of getting rejected. So here's the framework. I'm trying to rack up 300 rejections this year. I am doing anything I can think of that seems like something that I wouldn't usually do, like be on this podcast, and trying to create more opportunities for myself by just putting myself out there and know that if it works, that's amazing, right? I had this new opportunity and experience and also show up in a way that I probably wouldn't have before. But if it doesn't work, that's great too, because now I get to add it to my wall of rejections and just chalk it up to experience. Wow. I got to tell you, I love this. This is like making me smile. I mean, there's so many things I want to talk to you about about this. But first, I am a firm believer that no is the second best answer. Yes. I I tell my kids this all the time. You didn't have it anyway. So you're no worse off. Yes is obviously a great answer, but maybe is the worst, right? Because you're sitting there out there in the world, like, I don't know if this is going to work. So no is great. Like, it's clear. You just, it's something you don't have to spend time on. So just on that note, I just always tell my kids, no is the second best answer, which they usually don't like because it came after my no to them about something. But <laughs> nevertheless, it's a powerful lesson. Yeah. It's just, you know, parenting. You got to do what you can. Oh, yeah. I don't have kids, but no is not a complete sentence to my dog. So I know it's not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> no. True. True. But the other thing is, I just also, I just want to honor your vulnerability. Like I also have suffered from imposter syndrome. And I think every time you wander into, you know, a new area of growth for you can kind of feel like an imposter. Just for those that don't know, imposter syndrome is where your capability far exceeds your perception about your capability. And so in that gap is that kind of this feeling of being an imposter. And I really love your solution to that. It's very cognitive behavioral therapy of you to just go like turn towards it and go find the rejections. The other thing I would say, you know, I I do some executive coaching, and honestly, this is one of the things that I actually coach people on, is going to find evidence to the contrary. Like, how can you go out in the world and seek evidence to remind yourself of your capability, right? So, like, for me, one example was, it's not maybe the best example, but, like, I just naturally make connections. Like, it's just who I am. Like, as soon as we start talking, I have a list of names of people that you should connect with. And so it was effortless to me because it was effortless. I didn't think it was valuable. And so, like, here I am thinking that only spreadsheets and all these other things is real work, but these connections that I'm creating for people aren't valuable. And so, thus, I'm like, I'm not very good at doing spreadsheets. And so I'm like, thinking that I'm not doing a good job, right? So again, here is one example where like my capability makes sense. So what I did to counter that was I just went out and started talking to people. Hey, when I made that connection for you to this, to this, was that useful? And they're like, yeah, that turned into this company or this business or I made this relationship or whatever. And I just started to gather evidence that reminded me, no, 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 that is really valuable. And yeah, yeah, I am capable and I am qualified in that area. And so I, I really think, you know, seeking to gather evidence can be another way of helping you realign, you know, your perception of your capability with your actual capability. That's beautiful. 
it resonates with me so much and is giving me all the feels. I'm very similar to you. It's been a lifelong experience where I've always been a very flexible thinker and a creative problem solver, right? I know this about myself. I love solving problems, like love it. The bigger, more complex, multifaceted the problem, the better. And I've learned about myself that if I don't have like good professional problems to solve, then I start finding problems to solve places where maybe it's not the best place. And I never valued that as a skill either. That's something that never occurred to me as being something that was relevant to businesses or something that I could add to my resume. And only over the last couple of years is it something that I've started to realize could be beneficial to other people. But I'm still intimidated to show up in those places sometimes and to lean into that natural skill set and reaffirming right, the evidence, trying to get rejected and opening the door to possibilities. Those are just different ways to try to help me personally, but also to, you know, show up for other people in a way that's going to be meaningful. Yeah, no, I love that. It, do you know what a tropism is? You remember no. the word of tropism? Mm -mm. So tropism is a, a plant's natural inclination to turn towards the light. Like sunflowers. Like a sunflower, exactly. It's in the essence of a sunflower to turn towards the light. I believe that we all have our own unique essence of, you know, how we just show up naturally in the world that adds value. And so, like, to me, a lot of what I heard you say is, hey, I, you know, there's these ways that I show up that I didn't think were valuable, but now I'm starting to see are valuable. And so, to me, I think that is a process of starting to better understand who you are in your essence. And I will just say that I'm a little bit older than you are. I'm a Gen Xer, but I've never been so happy as I am today because I actually now trust in my essence. Like I trust in that, my own internal tropism that, you know, for me, being a connector, being an empath, being, you know, all these different things, like I can trust in that, that that's value in the world. And, but what I had to do is I had to shed a lot of these ideas of what I thought I was supposed to be. And that can be a... A scary process, but it's also one of self-discovery, and I have found it to be rewarding because I no longer have to be anybody but myself. So much better. So much easier. Yes. Oh, yes. Doug, you taught me something new today, and also I just hope that I can get to be like you. That sounds like such an amazing way to experience the world and also show up for your community, and, and I hope that someday I can also achieve that. Well, I think that you are already achieving a lot. I mean, I really, I have to say, I've really enjoyed this conversation on so many levels. I appreciate your vulnerability. I learned a ton about B Corps. You know, I'm super excited to have you back in Nevada. I mean, again, this is like, I'm getting a little emotional about it. Like, you know, when we set up to do this, this was, I knew we had a secret about Nevada. And a lot of people, when I first came over here, were like, what happened? What, what happened to you? How'd you end up in Reno? And now people are like, wow, you were in Reno. That's great. So we had a secret. But just to you know, know that you're back here doing good work, you're following your heart, you're, you sound like you're, you know, really lived in alignment with your intentions. And so, you know, I appreciate all the work you're doing to make Nevada a better place and happy to support you in any way that I can. And I really, again, I just really enjoyed this conversation. It's been beautiful. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it so much too. Your passion is infectious and it's been an incredible experience just talking to you for the last hour. Yeah, well, we'll have to do it again sometime, in person next time. Oh, yes, I would love that. Mm -hmm.